Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, we'll be giving readers advice on how to turn down gifts that make you cringe and when it's too late to chase your dreams. Helping me out today is Jamel Bowie. Listeners may remember him from his time as Slate's political correspondent, and he is now a New York Times opinion columnist. Jamel, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's incredible to me that in all my years of Slate things, I've actually never been on an episode of Prudence. I don't think so. That's exciting for me. Um, I know you have like, well, a lot of knowledge, but also a lot of varied interests and hobbies. So I feel like you have a lot to pull from when it comes to giving advice. Plus, you've got two kids. Um, I can't wait to hear what you have to say to these questions. But first, let's get your one piece of unsolicited advice. I think my one piece of unsolicited advice is that you you shouldn't give people unsolicited advice. <laughs> a little recursive. I just I know I'm per, I find it personally frustrating if I pose a question about something mm-hmm. and then it, it's sort of like I get lots of responses that are sort of like presuppose that I wanted like an answer to something I didn't actually ask. Right. Uh, and I just I just think people should really make an effort to respond to the things that they're being asked, whether that's on the Internet, whether that's in person. Try not to, like, make assumptions about what their mental state might be. Just like sort of like there's a, a question or a request or something on the table. Respond to that. And if you have other questions about it, you should ask those questions. But I find that not just on the Internet, but like in life, it, there's a temptation to sort of like bring two requests or two questions to two conversations assumptions about what the other person might be thinking, what they might need that you don't actually know. And it's not all that difficult to just ask. And I'm a big believer in you should just ask. Mm -hmm. Like The worst that's going to happen is you won't get an answer. Right. Or for some people, the worst that's going to happen is they won't get an opportunity to give advice. I think there's (laughs) this human urge, like we're all just boiling over with advice we want to give. And I'm so lucky that I get to scratch that itch on this podcast and in the column. And almost everyone who comes on says something like, I've been wanting to do this forever. I just have so much advice inside me to give. So I feel like in our society, we need more outlets somewhere for people to give advice in a way that's not annoying. People could like do more civic activities in which you're sort of like, you know, engaged in some kind of common effort. And usually in those sorts of situations, the opportunity to give advice sort of like organically emerges. Mm -hmm. I just don't feel as much as I'm I'm happy to be with you on this podcast. I also don't ever feel compelled to give people advice. I'm very much of this sort of like, I'll observe. And if someone needs something from me, I'm happy to offer it. But yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to do it today. Um, (laughs) You'll get to hear that from Jamel after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash prudyplus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash prudyplus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Jamel Bowie. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled, Burnt Out on Gifts. 
My future in-laws have gotten us many gifts over the years that are just not appreciated. Some examples include a fruit stand, yoga cushions, healing crystals, clothing that isn't quite my style, yearly meditational calendars, random knickknacks, etc. We've tried to give them a list of things to buy us, but we still get random stuff on top of that. I think one of the reasons I feel frustrated by this is because some of this stuff is just plain culturally appropriative. Most recently, they bought me an Indian cookbook for my birthday. Reader, I am Indian. I have recipe books passed down from my family. I'm good on this. My in-laws tend to be pretty sensitive about feedback, especially anything that might make them feel like they're not good white allies. A couple of years ago, my partner told his mom that she said something around me that was a microaggression, and it ended up being a three-month saga about her hurt white woman's feelings. Is there a good way we might be able to deliver the sentiment, please do not buy us vaguely culturally appropriative and at times microaggressive stuff? Is there a better way we can have this conversation that doesn't call attention to their whiteness? Or should I just accept that we will always get gifts that we don't want and have to donate and or return? Not the most important issue, but I think a fruit stand seems like a harmless and potentially even useful gift. I don't think that's too bad. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Yoga cushions and healing crystals and Indian cookbooks. So that's that's a little that's a little cringe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I can even see how the healing crystals and maybe even the yoga cushions happened, which is that these people live in a town, maybe in Northern California, somewhere close to where I live, and there's this lovely boutique that has really nicely displayed New Age stuff. And when you're in the boutique, everything looks really good and seems special. So you go in there and carefully, lovingly pick one thing, and then you bring it home, and it's kind of like, why would someone want this crystal if they weren't yeah. into crystals? <laughs> but I can kind of see how they got there. Um, I do think we probably want to encourage the letter writer to separate out the two issues. One is gifts being useless and unwanted. Um that's just part of surviving in our society is saying thank you, maybe displaying it when the person comes, maybe regifting it, whatever. I could go on my rant about how adults should just stop giving each other gifts because everyone gets it wrong, but that's for another time. So separate the issue of the gifts themselves from the bigger problem, which to me is um, the in-laws relationship to their race and yours. So I think I think you might be making a mistake by focusing on the presence, um, maybe because it feels easier to tackle than that bigger problem. Yeah, that was my exact thought because it's one thing to just get a gift that you don't particularly like. I'm a big fan of giving people like consumables of things that they might like eat or drink because like, you know, people tend to like snacks. You know, if they drink, they might like a nice bottle of wine. Random items that you're supposed to keep doesn't, I don't really think works out uh, uh, well, but that's just a part of life. You get them, you deal with them. But it's the cookbook is sort of like kind of as emblematic of the actual problem. It does seem like the cookbook is it. It seems like the in-laws may be trying to appreciate, mm -hmm. you know, their daughter-in-law's culture, but are doing so in a way that isn't in any kind of like give or take. We want to know about you. What do you want to share with us sort of relationship? It's more right. of a, well, you're you're Indian. You're going to like an Indian cookbook, right? Right. And that is not great. And I think you're right, Janae, that that's the conversation that our letter writer should be having. 
I myself am never sure that there is a good way to raise sensitive issues mm-hmm. and confronting someone with sensitive issues. I'm never sure there's actually a way to do that in a way that's sort of like going to prophylactically protect the other person's feelings. Like that's, in fact, you may not want to do that because the idea is you want that person to recognize that like they're doing something that may be causing you harm. Right. And if they feel shame, if they feel anxiety, if they feel any of those things as a result of learning that information, that is like an important feedback signal for them to have. Mm. Um, uh, uh, we tend to be afraid of causing shame, but like shame can be a very useful emotion. Right. I don't want to dismiss how difficult it is to have these conversations, especially when the in-laws already had a three-month fit right, over the right. last time something like this was brought up. This is letter writer's family. She needs to get along with these people. You don't got to be mean, but you, I mean, being straightforward and sort of, you know, this specific thing made me feel this way, not going to make any presumptions about your intent, but like, this is, this is how I felt receiving it. I felt this way before, and I think we should talk about that. Right. Um, It actually reminds me of something my therapist told me this week. So I've said on the podcast many times, um, I hate conflict. I'll do almost anything to avoid it. And we were discussing an issue I was not wanting to bring up with someone because I didn't want to feel mean. And I had this idea that if we had a conflict, that would mean we no longer had a good friendship relationship. And she said to me that conflict actually can increase intimacy. So if what you want is to be close to this person, you're feeling pulled away from them. You're feeling distant from them now because of this thing that you're not saying. And if you say it, and if you are able to resolve it, you could actually become closer. And I think that might be a good way for the letter writer to think about this. Again, these are your in-laws. They're going to be around forever. I'm assuming you want to be close to them um, or you don't want to feel sort of like you're rolling your eyes and judging them and being annoyed by them all the time. So it might be worth trying to push through the conflict to get to the greater intimacy and the respect that you deserve that's on the other side. That said, I think your husband should take the lead on this. I always, as a general rule, think that the person who is related to the in-laws has got to be the one to kind of lead the conversation. Even if you're in it, you don't want them to see you as like his wife who's always complaining and making everyone miserable. Like he needs to speak for you as a couple or with you as your partner. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I know that in my life when there's been friction um, of any kind between my parents and my wife, I'm the one who takes the lead and sort of being like, this is her perspective, or this is why I think you may be misinterpreting this behavior um, and not putting that burden on my spouse at all. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's, it's not really theirs to bear. It's they're, they're, they're ultimately your parents, your, in this case, letter writer's spouse's parents. Um, and I think it's exactly right that it's letter writer's spouse's responsibility then to sort of take the lead and speak to their parents. It's not that you two are calling out and policing the in-laws saying, you messed up, you gave an Indian cookbook to an Indian person, you're bad. It's that you're explaining, and this is how it works with most microaggressions, is that by doing this, you kind of sent a message that you may see her as her ethnicity rather than as a full person or like you would see anyone else. She's getting the feeling that when you see her, you're seeing Indian. You're not seeing daughter-in-law. And that's hurtful. I had a column from a letter writer whose girlfriend was Indian. 
And the parents loved her, really, really loved her, but they were just obsessed with her ethnicity in a way that made things really weird. They always brought it up. All they wanted to talk about was India and like Indian topics, Indian food. And I took the opportunity to solicit reader feedback for this for a We Are Prudence column. And most people did agree that the letter writer should take responsibility for facilitating the relationship. Some of it had to do with like creating um, and moderating conversations about things beyond her identity. And some of it involved just really explicitly bringing up the fact that it was hurtful. So this came from people who'd been in similar situations before. So that's sort of, that's what I would push for here. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Jamel, to answer your letters. And the next one is titled, No Longer an Only Child. I got an Ancestry DNA kit for Christmas. When I got the results back, I noticed that I was matched with a half-brother on my dad's side. I messaged back and forth with my newly discovered half-brother and learned that he was given up for adoption four years before my parents were married in the 1960s when my dad was a senior in college. He said he reached out to my dad a few years ago through an intermediary at the adoption agency and was told that my dad didn't want any contact. My sister has also done her DNA, so I asked if she'd noticed that there's a half-brother. She won't talk about it and is infuriated that I messaged our half-brother. Here's my question. Would it be unreasonable to quietly tell my dad what I've discovered and let him know that I don't think any less of him for having fathered a kid when he was too young to handle it? I strongly feel that birth parents owe adoptees some information, and it's really terrible to reject them all over again if they try to initiate contact. I don't understand why my sister is so upset. It isn't like my father had an affair. I'd like to encourage my dad to rethink his no-contact mandate. Is this unreasonable, or should I leave it alone? Not unreasonable. I would support you in having a conversation with him. The first thing I want to say is that at this point in life, before you take an ancestry test, you have got to really think through all the implications and everything you might find out. Um, Because at at this point, we pretty much know that there are a lot of family secrets about who's biologically related and who's not. And you really want to ask yourself whether you and your family are ready for some information that might be destabilizing. That was my immediate thought. But if you're going to do one, it should not be an individual decision. Or if it is hmm. an individual decision, it should be informed by what you just mentioned, Janae, that like this is information that could prove very disruptive to your family. And if it is that kind of information, I do think you I, I, I do not I do not think it is a given that you share it. Um, right. Uh, this is this is tough because I'm 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 you know I'm looking at this at this question and I don't think it is unreasonable to want to speak to your father about his decision to keep no contact with this child he had when he was very younger. I don't think it's unreasonable to want to speak to him, but I don't think it's unreasonable for the father to not want to maintain contact. I, I think mm-hmm. I don't think that is a unethical choice to make. He. Your father made a decision to put this child up for adoption, presumably with the mother of the child. And that that is that. And that, that was the decision he made. If he wants to revisit it, that's one thing. And that's why having a conversation with him about revisiting it is unreasonable. But if he decides, no, I do not want to revisit it. Like I've, I've thought through this very carefully. 
um, uh, I, I've, I've held this view for this time and I'm, I'm going to hold to it. I don't think that's unreasonable either. This is difficult stuff. Right. And I think everyone should be aware that saying yes to contact doesn't lead to some Disney Oprah Winfrey show happy ending reunion. Um, right. That right. could open up a whole new can of worms with um, people's expectations not being met or there not being compatibility. So I understand why he might not want to have contact. I think it's okay. I agree that it's okay for the letter writer to say, I know this and to affirm that he would have support from you and no judgment from you if he decided to rethink it. And just to let him know that you don't think there's any shame that's has a place here. And that might encourage him to change his mind, but I don't think it's only a a slight difference in emphasis, but I don't think encouraging him to rethink the no contact mandate is really your role. You can tell him what, what you know and how you feel and what you are able to do and want to do to support him. But I don't think you want to be pushy about it. I think part of what makes it tough. I mean, a lot of things make it tough. Part of what makes it tough is that this is someone you are related to. And so you feel some kind of obligation to sort of like connection to whatever comes next after your father learns that you know. Um, but on a certain level, although this is your half brother, this isn't really about you, mm-hmm. right? It's about your your father and this child um, and what your father wants that relationship to be. Uh, right. And so, I, I mean, my, my inclination is to sort of like, as you said, Janae, this is something where you, you say, I, you know, no shame, you know, nothing, nothing about this changes our relationship. This isn't, I don't think this is a place, this is, I don't think this is a place for the letter writer to be sort of like, pushy is the wrong word, but you know, sort of like. Mm-hmm. Manipulative, manipulative is too strong too, but yeah, I think pushy is fine. Yeah. Um, it's not going to help. I don't think you're going to change his mind by being pushy. If you do change his mind, I think it will be doing something again to take down the shame or whatever it is, whatever negative feelings he has about the situation um, and reframe it as something, you know, exciting and full of potential, full of potential problems, but you know, an opportunity for your family rather than something that reflects poorly on him. Because again, it it doesn't at all. Um, But wait real quick, Jamel. So you have never done 23 and me ancestry, nothing, nothing. Really? I've never done it. We'll never do it. Really? When, yes. when and how did you decide that? I, I, I feel like I decided this when everyone was like starting to do it. And I just was like, I don't want, I don't, I don't care to know. Uh, I don't, I don't, I have no burning. It's, it's a combination of things. I have no burning desire to know like all that much about my ancestry. I also, my family keeps a pretty like decent family tree. So I actually have like a pretty good mm. sense of sort of like things going back to sort of like antebellum America. So mm-hmm. I'm not, like there's plenty of available information and as much as I need to know. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's pretty much the, the whole of it. Uh, yeah. I just have no, no particular desire. My wife's side of the family, they also have like pretty detailed family records. So it's sort of mm-hmm. like for the kids, if they need to, if they need to know who their great, 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 great grandparents were like, we have that information okay. already. I think that helps a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say I was surprised because, you know, you're pretty into history and I thought you might want more details on where your family fits into history, but you have that already. I did one of the tests. I think when I worked at The Root, we got one for free and I just did it without putting much thought into it. It was before they were being 
critiqued in a number of ways in terms of, you know, how the data is protected and all of the negative things that can come out. Um, I know my parents are my parents. I look identical to both of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I also had already figured out some, you know, slight twists and turns in my family story without the scientific evidence. So it ended up being really anticlimactic for me. I just, I started getting all these emails about my distant, 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 distant cousins. You know, I would, they would pop up in my Gmail and it was just, I don't think, I don't think anyone really cared because I mean, we all have millions of distant cousins, you know? Right, so right. if my kid wanted to do one, I think, I think I'd let him, but I definitely understand all the arguments against it. And yeah, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready because you can find out a lot, a lot. Yes. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. I'm Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Jamel and I are back to tackle our last question for the day. Jamel, are you ready? Absolutely. This letter is titled, Maybe I Should Just Go to Grad School. I don't feel like I'm living up to my potential. I live in a small, low-cost city in a nice house with good friends nearby. Everyone is pleasant at my job, and it pays the bills, but it is not particularly gratifying or challenging. I often daydream about quitting my job and moving to Chicago or New York and trying my hand as a full-time activist or artist, both things that I do now, but not as much as I'd like. I love the idea of going somewhere new and giving my all and trying to succeed there. I just haven't done it. I have no children and my boyfriend is on board, so nothing is stopping me except the thought of losing the nice life I have already built. I've never lived in a big city and I worry that what I would gain would not make up for everything I would be losing. Financial security, friends and family nearby, stable career path. I would also like to have a baby in a few years and I'd like to be settled down near my family, very likely back in the city I am now, when I do it. Should I plunge into the unknown and uproot my life or is it just part of growing up that you can't have everything you want? Part of the reason I chose this question for you is that you have a demanding job, children, a wife, and 700 hobbies, reviewing cereal, photography, cooking. How do you make time for it all? I make time for it all by working from home and going to sleep early and waking up early. Um, I, I try, you know, I try to fit everything in as much as possible. I mean, it's not, you're not doing everything every day, but sort mm -hmm. of I try to make time for as much as the stuff that, um, you know, helps give my life, uh, you know, texture and meaning. Um, I try to fit, fit in as much as, it, as I can, just sort of like in the course of everyday life. Like, you know, I walk the dog, so I bring a camera with me. Mm. Um you know, I we I we have one car, and I my main form of transportation is an, is an e bike, and so I bike most places, and I also I have cameras with me, I have stuff like that. So if I see something interesting, I can take a picture. So like a lot of that happens. Um, then I I love to bake, um, and so I try to make time, you know, every every week to to bake something, bake some bread, bake something for for the family or for people. I try to spend you know as much time as possible. With the kids, it usually means like hauling them around when I'm doing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of just like always trying to include them as much as possible, and so that's sort of how I I, I 
negotiate this just mm-hmm. by building it into my life as much as possible. Uh, you, you know, for this this letter writer, my inclination, you know, if you have no particular obligate, if you have no dependence, right? Like you, mm-hmm. no one's dependent on you. If you're like reasonably financially secure um, and you just want to try something new in your life, my inclination is to say, go for it. But Jamel, this person is not saying I want to move to New York and go to grad school. They want to be a full-time artist or activist. You know? Where's the income coming from? I mean, I, I guess I kind of assume that they would have... <laughs> <laughs> this is like part of the... Um, part, of, part of the... They have like a, a plan for that. Also, wait. I mean, you know how they always say you want to be running towards something, not away from something? This is true. I'm hearing them say full-time activist or artist. These are, and not to say that artists don't engage in activism, but those are really broad categories um, and really different things. And to me, the letter is just giving me, I'm dissatisfied and want to escape. Um, The grass is greener on the other side. Not there's a life that I know would make me happy that I'm really passionate about. That's a very that that is a very see this is I'm not I'm not a professional advice giver. Um, uh, that is a very good point and observation because uh, you know as I go over this again, you're right. This isn't I want to be a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. I want to be a screenwriter. I know that there's a there's a specific set of steps I I I have to do to get there. It's a bit unknown. It's a bit um nebulous whether i would succeed but i know that there's a path for for point a to point b should i should i try to do that right or Um, i'll I'll never stop thinking about it if i don't give it a chance because this is my dream if this is a case of maybe of of, uh, uh, the grass is greener on the other side i would say that first really think about whether what you're not doing like along these lines if you don't pack up and go to Chicago and become an artist, will you get to the end of your life and feel like you've regretted something? Right. Um, you 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 have missed out on something that would have like brought you fulfillment. Um, if I, I think if you feel very strongly, right, that sort of like this, I'm gonna, I, I don't want to have this regret in my life. Then you should think about doing it. But if you don't, if you don't feel like you're going to have that kind of regret if you just want some more novelty and variety in your Mm -hmm. life there's room to build that in where you are right do more art do more activism yeah the reason i asked you about balancing everything is that um this person has said they want to have a child in three years right and i worry that people who are a little bit prone to dissatisfaction and feeling understimulated in life um and don't feel that they've really found themselves really struggle in the early part of parenthood when you have even less time for all of that. When you have less time for all of it, you are trying for both parents trying to like negotiate really your relationship to this new thing, right? This right. sort of like new person in your life when you um may feel when you will feel frustrated or even like a little resentful of just how much you have to give. Um, and how much it seems like you may not be getting back uh, mm-hmm. in those early years. I have, a, I have a path forward here. I'm going to come out and say, don't move. 
I, I don't see you picking up, moving, doing this vague combination of art and activism um, in a way that feels satisfying to you. I worry that I could get a letter from someone in that situation saying, I moved to do art and activism, but um, I'm not really fitting in in the communities and people aren't supporting me. And I'm just, I'm just not sure that it's working out for me. Um, again, I think if you're, you're prone to dissatisfaction, that character is going to come with you wherever you are. And maybe that's what you want to work on changing a little bit. So here's my suggestion. You're, you know, you're going to be back in this small city in three years, probably with a baby if your timeline works out. Um, Focus on the long game. So right now is your time to practice squeezing all the art and activism you can into every free minute you have. You want to be absolutely milking your life for all it's worth. Um, Because those are the skills that you're going to need once you have that kid. And I don't want you to be miserable and dissatisfied once you have even less free time than you do now. Um, You need to build the muscles to find joy, find meaning, find satisfaction, do what you love in every single moment and second you have. And even it sounds like there's some flexibility with money here since you are willing to move and do things that don't really bring in money. If there's money that can be saved or put aside, put that in account and use that account for a babysitter when you have a child because you're going to want that time back. Yeah. If you find things that you're passionate about, um, your most urgent need is going to be how to carve out time in the day, the week, the month to do what you love and to do what makes you feel good outside of your kid. So I see this as a long-term plan. Start now, start building the life you want, start building the discipline to put more energy into your passions that you want um, so that you can be happy where you are when your life changes in three years. And I want to emphasize the the discipline part of it. Like if, if these are things you want to pursue, if you want to pursue doing art and you want to make it a meaningful part of your life, you're going to have to say to yourself, this is the thing I'm going to do. This is mm-hmm. the thing I have to do. This is, uh, you know, these are, these are the things that, you know, in my life that I don't feel as strongly about that I'm going to set aside in order to do this thing that I do feel is very important. I, I am a lifelong video game player. I do not play as much as many video games as I think I would like to precisely mm-hmm. because like I, I like doing art myself and I like, you know, I, I love watching movies and thinking about movies like these, these other things that I, I love to do. Um, video games are just sort of like not, they can't, they can't, they don't have the time for it. So right. that's something I drop. Um, but, uh, uh, I think cultivating the discipline to sort of say, this is going to be a part of my life. I'm going to make it a part of my life in the same way that you make exercise a part of your life right. um, is really important. Um, you have some time, I think, to sort of develop those habits and create the life you want. Another cliche, you know, people say, you know, create a life that you don't need a vacation from. I would say create a life that you don't want to flee to New York or Chicago from. I think you can have a, I think the feeling that you're seeking is something you can have where you are now with a little more commitment and like Jamel said, discipline. Okay. Those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been fun and hopefully helpful. Thank you, Jamel. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Keep up with Jamel's writing at New York Times Opinion, where you can also subscribe to his newsletter just for Times subscribers. And he also has a podcast about movies. Jamel, do you want to tell people about it? 
Sure, it's called Unclear and Present Danger. It's a podcast about the political and military thrillers of the 1990s and what they say about the politics of that decade. Okay, Unclear and Present Danger. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. I'm your Dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.